Welcome to the Ignatius Press Podcast. I'm Mark Brumley. I hope you enjoy the discussion in this episode. For more information about Ignatius Press, check out our website at ignatius.com. All right, welcome everybody. Uh, my name is Paul Sins with Ignatius Press. Uh, welcome to another uh, Facebook Live chat with uh, one of our authors. This week we're joined by Trent Horn, uh, who's a staff apologist at Catholic Answers. Uh, Trent is the author of many books and many articles, podcast host, uh, speaker, all, all of that sort of stuff. Uh, he, we published a book by Trent back in 2017 called The Case for Catholicism. That uh, is uh, the subtitle is Answers to Classic and Contemporary Protestant Objections. Uh, so, Trent, welcome. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. All right, so let's uh, let's dive right in. I've got, I've got a, a few questions prepared. And uh, for those watching, if you have any questions for us, feel free to uh, comment, and I'll do the best that I can to uh, get those questions to Trent. All right, so first, um, the case for Catholicism. How did you organize the chapters and themes in the case for Catholicism? Yes, it was is difficult uh, to approach how do you defend the Catholic Church in a single volume. Uh, there's so many different types of topics to address. Whenever I write a book, I always try to create a skeletal framework of it where all the chapters are figured out before I start writing the book. So when it came to this book, I knew that I knew where I was going to begin and where I was going to end. Uh, so it's funny, actually, uh, this book is almost sort of like an unofficial sequel to Catholicism and Fundamentalism by Carl Keating, which is also published by Ignatius Press. Uh, actually, uh, Carl even told me he, he didn't feel the need to write a second edition of Catholicism and Fundamentalism because he felt the arguments were handled adequately uh, in my own work. And I, I recall in that book that Carl... He starts with kind of a biography, uh, so to speak, and description of uh, Catholic critics at that time. And then he moved into the inspiration of scripture, the authority of the church, uh, various Catholic doctrine. And then he ended with the, the Marian doctrines. And so what's funny is I kind of did something similar. I knew I was going to start with the authority of the church, specifically uh, refuting sola scriptura, and then dealing with the issues of the tradition and canon of scripture to show that Scripture is not our is not our sole authority. Uh, then from there, if I show well, what's not the sole authority? What is our authority? Where does that yeah. come from? And to build up then, Christ Church is our authority. And as well, what is Christ Church? What is its goal? It's to get us to heaven, to be with God and with Jesus. And so, then naturally follows from that is to defend how the church does that through sacraments, such as by uh, receiving baptism, uh, justification being a process, uh, and, and moving through it in that way to understand our salvation. And then finally ending with, I felt like the, the remaining topics to discuss, I felt could be grouped under a single heading, uh, which I call the body of Christ, which is who's in the body of Christ, people in purgatory, the people in heaven, and finally our blessed mother who is in heaven. And then it all forms just kind of one thread when you go through it. Great. Okay, and piggybacking on, you mentioned Catholicism and fundamentalism. Uh, yeah. So why, why write this book at this time in history? You know, what, what prompted this book? And then related to Carl Keating's book, I, I, won't, I won't ask 
what deficiencies you saw in that <laughs> you see in that book, but just what I don't think Carl I don't think Carl would mind. <laughs> but no, it is. Point, well, what is what is the reason for a successor? You know, why why write sure. a sort of success for that book right now? Well, because I think that what is helpful here, and I think Carl and any other author, and I would wholeheartedly agree with this, is that no single book is ever going to definitively settle um, a particular issue. There are always different takes that we can have when it comes to this regard and presenting evidence. Uh, something else that it's not a deficiency in Carl's book, it is a deficiency of any book that is written, is that once you write a book, uh, time marches on without you. So you can write a book, but through the hazards of history, you will still have, if there's true elements in there, they'll, they'll always remain. But uh, new challenges will arise and new ways of articulating questions. And so you have to be able to approach those questions in that way, to be able to approach it with, with fresh perspective, uh, also newer scholarship, uh, and also new criticism. So, so Carl's book did a great job when it was published. What was that published? Like 1990, I think? Uh, it was, or 88, 1988 was when. 88, I think. Yeah, 1988, Catholicism Fundamentalism. That was one of the first books I read during my conversion to the Catholic faith. That was back in 2002. And uh, so it was a wonderful book in that regard. And there aren't a lot, and there's, there are other books that try to be single volume approaches to uh, Catholicism. But from that time, from 1988 until today, uh, Carl's book really, it didn't just invigorate Catholic apologetics, it also invigorated Protestant apologetics. Like I have my, my bookshelf over here with uh, different books that are critical of the Catholic faith. Most of them were written in direct reply to or because of Carl's book. Well, here, I'll grab one and give you an example. Here, I'll just, yeah, here's a classic right here. Uh, Roman Catholics and Evangelicals, Agreements and Differences by the late the late Norm Geisler and Ralph McKenzie. So, uh, you know, pretty, pretty hefty book here. It was written, I think, 94 and 95. There's other books like that. Um, but it, it raises objections to stuff in Carl's work and, and in other... Catholic apologetics were popular at that time. And so it needed an answer. So that's why I felt that in this book, I could address not only the classic objections from people like Martin Luther or John Calvin, but also these more current objections that you have from leading Protestant apologists. Uh, while understanding the scope of my work, what was so hard is that every subject I dealt with in the book could easily and has been expanded into entire book-length treatments. Ignatius Press has published Upon This Rock by Steve Ray, for example, a whole book on the papacy. Uh, there's whole books on the Deuterocanon, on justification, on salvation, on Mary. Uh, so the trick was I wanted to create something that would be useful for people uh, so they could get a wide array of objections answered in a, in a workable space in a single volume treatment. Yeah, great. Thank you. And um, uh, are you aware of, uh, or if not, what do you, what do you think the um, Protestant reaction has been to the book. I mean, have you have you have you had any direct responses to the book, or or if not, what do you kind of? Uh, I have had. It's been mostly muted. Uh, some of the authors that I replied to in this work, uh, I'm not aware of them directly replying to it online. The ones that are that are still with us, I'd be happy to engage them in a public forum. On that, so when it comes to Protestant apologists and critics, uh, I haven't seen much of a reply. Ironically enough, a apologist for the Mormon faith reviewed the book and offered criticisms of some parts, 
Though, ironically enough, he agreed. He thought the chapters on Sola Scriptura, on Sola Fide, baptism, he, he agrees with the church on that. So he thought those chapters were very good. Uh, uh, so he uses some of those very arguments, but he, of course, disagreed with some of the other more distinctly Catholic chapters of the Eucharist or the papacy. Uh, sure. So I, I have seen some Protestants have posted uh, intensive replies to parts of my book. And that does reveal a difficulty in my work, which is that on any of these topics, I mean, I could have I could have written, like I said, a 400 page book on sola scriptura or sola fide justification on Mary. Uh, so I have to pick and choose. And so many of their replies are only reflections of the limitations of the medium, which is I can't reply to every single objection. Yeah. But other, otherwise, I mean, I'd be happy to reply to them maybe in another format, a second edition or in another book dealing with more advanced objections. But overall, I, I was surprised it's been muted. Now, among uh, lay people, I've seen uh, a, 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 wonder, a very positive reply from, from lay Catholics who want more substantive, substantive material on defending our faith that doesn't go over people's heads. That's the challenge always. You want to make it substantive. You want to make it comprehensive. But I just cannot stand it when authors uh, intentionally or unintentionally write in an obtuse or difficult way so that they're not as helpful for their readers. So I feel like this book, most, uh, so, so there's a subset of people who uh, I think benefit greatly, the ones who really wanted to go deeper, especially those who are considering converting to Catholicism. Uh, I think the book was tremendously helpful for them. Great. Um, so we have we have a question uh, from a viewer who's asking about uh, the the new scholarship that you. Mm. Yes, uh, it says uh, he's wondering what sort of emergent scholarships are there that 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 we should be taking into account. Oh sure. Uh, so what I've tried to do in my book, and I might even write a whole other book just on this topic in the future, uh, is uh, I, what I tried to do in my book is to show that many of the things we believe as Catholics. Uh, many, or many of the evidences that support Catholic doctrine are actually upheld by prominent Protestant scholars. Uh, and so this is uh, research and material that wasn't necessarily available, let's say, when Carl Keating was writing in 1988 or Catholic apologists writing even earlier than that. Like, let's say uh, the, the McCarthy Rumble radio replies or, yeah. or Frank Sheed, for example. Uh, some of it may have been available in Carl's time. I'm not entirely, I, I wouldn't know exactly. Uh, but the more recent scholarship, I'll give you a few examples. One uh, would be in my book, I cite evidence for Mary's uh, perpetual virginity, arguing that the view that the brothers and sisters of the Lord are not Mary's biological children. But one alternative view is that they are step siblings from Joseph's previous marriage. I cite the work of Protestant author Richard Bauckham who actually, he denies the perpetual virginity of Mary, but he holds to this Epiphanian Eastern view that the brothers of the Lord are from Joseph's previous marriage. Uh, and he presents arguments for that uh, in a journal article. And that's a lot coming from Bauckham, who of course is a Protestant scholar who denies the, the, that Mary is ever virgin, but doesn't believe the brothers and sisters of the Lord is what proves for him that particular doctrine, even though it's a stumbling block for other people. Another example would be in the chapters on justification, I cite from the emerging body of evidence from what is called the new perspective on Paul. So these are off Protestant authors like N.T. Wright, James Dunn, E.P. Sanders. These are authors who say that many scholars going all the way back to Luther and Calvin misunderstood the thesis Paul was advancing in his writings and anachronistically imposed the debate between Catholics and Protestants in the 16th century 
upon the debate between Christians and Jews in the first century. And in fact, one observer that I quote who defends the new perspective on Paul Thesis says that the NPP view of salvation is, is similar to the Catholic view of salvation, about being a part of a covenant, being obedient to the terms of the covenant. Uh, so, uh, and there's other scholars who've actually written a, a longer treatment of that. I believe Michael Barber and Brant Petrie wrote a whole book on that called Paul, a New Testament Jew. Or at least I'm pretty sure they draw from that scholarship. But, but those are just a few examples. There's many others where when I, I try to develop the evidences for my case, I actually try to draw not from Catholic scholarship, but Protestant scholarship, because it makes it all all the much stronger. Right. Great. And you made reference to uh, the fact that you hope the book would have would play, could play a certain role in people who are looking into the Catholic faith, maybe considering converting. Um, could you tell tell us a little bit about your own conversion and sort of the arguments that maybe you struggled with along the way, and if any of those were addressed in the, sure. in the yeah, I, I would say that for me, uh, in high school, I was befriended by Catholic students. And after that, I, I came to believe in Jesus and was Christian. And then I had to really uh, do a lot of searching to figure out what kind of Christian I wanted to be. And uh, I thought, well, why don't I just read the Bible and I'll figure it out for myself. But then I had to challenge these notions of sola scriptura to see if they were biblical one thing that really helped me was saying that the Catholic view of salvation about the need for baptism, the possibility of losing one's salvation, it seemed very clear to me that that's what the Bible taught. And so all of that moved me closer and closer to the Catholic perspective on salvation. Uh, then all the other doctrines fell into place. The hardest ones were probably, uh, for many people, uh, things like the Marian doctrines or dogmas, thinking that they put too much of an emphasis on a creature rather than the creator. But in a proper understanding of them, I saw, no, these actually reflect the glory of God as the creator who chose, even though he did not have to, he chose to become man by being born of a woman, born under the law, as Paul says in Galatians 4.4. 4. And so it took time, but it all kind of fell into place for me in that regard. Great. Uh, now, one of, one of the things about, about this book, like we talked about how it's this sort of single comprehensive volume that, that that brings along certain limitations, but also uh, there are certain certain benefits to having everything kind of contained in one place. Mm-hmm. So, and as you said, there are many book length treatments of particular topics out there. I mean, there's right. countless at this point. Um, so, can you say a little more about why you think it's important to have this single, comprehensive, and systematic defense of the main points of Catholic belief? Um, and that systematic point that I that I kept coming back to and reading the book that right. you, know, you start, you start with authority uh, and work your way down from there. So right. why, is it, why, why would you say that's important? Well, it's important so that people can have a proper framework to understand everything. And that if someone is going to change their worldview, they have to be able to put all of the data together and fit it into a larger framework. So it's not helpful if you just prove this Bible verse is Catholic perspective, that Bible verse. Here's the doctrines. Here are the proof texts that go underneath them. You need to have a larger framework to see how they all fit together and understanding authority, uh, the teaching authority of the church, how the church manifests our salvation through things like sacraments. So you need to have that entire system in place so that, oh, okay, so this makes sense in light of this. And to especially see what, you know, you have like what the catechism calls the hierarchy of truths. You have the more central elements of the faith, which 
I actually was not able to address in this book, which would be like the Trinity, the existence of God. But when it comes to hierarchy of, let's say, the Catholic, the distinctly Catholic elements of our faith, authority will be number one, following from there, you know, apostolic succession, uh, the ministerial priesthood, the sacraments, uh, how the sacraments are efficacious in our lives, how they affect us, the communion of saints, all building on one another. And also, it's just helpful that if you have someone who is considering becoming Catholic, instead of having to read that book for this doctrine and this book for that doctrine, to say, well, here's one book that covers the major objections you will face for each doctrine and also defends the major pieces of evidence uh, that are offered in favor of them. So as I went through each uh, doctrine, uh, each section of the book, I tried very hard to present essentially the same pattern of, well, here's the biblical support for this doctrine. Here is the historical support for it we find in the early church fathers. And then here are answers to the typical objections one will hear to the Catholic position on it so that it builds uh, on one another. And then you have this, as you said, this systematic uh, approach to the issue. But also for me, it's really is convenience. I want someone who's considering becoming Catholic. They can sit down with this book, read it from back to front and get a really nice view of the church and be able to make a, be prepared to make a decision to better explore it or not. Yeah. Okay. And how long have you been at Catholic Answers? I've been at Catholic Answers since December of 2012. So I'm going up on about eight years and being a staff apologist. And I cannot believe it's been that long. And has your, do you think that the, the time that you've spent there, every, everything you've learned since being a Catholic Answers and even because of being a Catholic Answers, um, do you think that, that that had an impact on the book? You know, what would it have been vastly different if you had written it in 2011 versus 2017? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, I have been, I've been privileged uh, to study under mentors here who are so knowledgeable in the faith. People like Tim Staples, uh, yeah. Jimmy Aiken, our senior apologist. It's been incredibly helpful. The very first book that I published in 2013 was Answering Atheism. So in fact, uh, it was nice being at Catholic Answers. The first three books that I wrote, I was able to cut my teeth on topics that I was well-versed in that uh, there wasn't really a comprehensive Catholic treatment of. Uh, so that was Answering Atheism, Persuasive Pro-Life, and Hard Sayings, my book on Bible difficulties. So I'm really grateful that I wrote those books because yeah. it allowed me to, one, get a handle on how to be a writer. And two, uh, yeah, get the, the deliver, give me time to learn and study many of these other issues. I mean, I'd studied them for a long time before coming to Catholic Answers, but I learned so much more and I continue to learn more. Uh, and there's going to be things I continue to learn and little tweaks I'll probably make in the book uh, over the next several years, the rest of my life in the books that I've published or, or release something new or a second edition. But uh, it was very providential to publish in areas that I was well-versed in prior to working at Catholic Answers that uh, was not as traditionally focused on in the Catholic world like atheism. Uh, there weren't that many comprehensive treatments of atheism out there in 2013. Uh, but then developing those skills so that I was able to create uh, this work and become acquainted with other authors and draw from their works as well to put, you know, Gary Machuda, Steve Ray, uh, Jimmy, Tim, uh, because I, I really, the book could only succeed because much of the research, while a lot of the research is in original of mine, other research is standing on the shoulders of those who have gone before me, and they've, they've done a great job in doing that. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's great. Um, okay. So you mentioned, um, we, we've talked a little bit about how 
the the role that this book could play for anybody who picks it up. You know, you you don't want to write in a in a sort of a ostentatious style so that so that um, nobody can pick it up. Right. But do you? I I mean, the, the book is very very well documented. Footnotes, you know, very well researched. Uh, was it was it important? I mean, was it even on your mind while you were writing it? to to try to present it in this kind of I almost want to say bulletproof way you know where you where you've got your documentation your arguments very laid out so that even if an academic picked it up they would be that it would all be laid out in front of them oh yeah yes uh, and that is something that is very common to all of my books uh, the only exception might be my book why we're Catholic but even that book still has a significant number of footnotes why we're Catholic. Uh, it's funny. A lot of times when I had people who are interested in becoming Catholic, I send them two books. I send them why we're Catholic, which is published by Catholic answers press, which I wrote at about an eighth grade reading level, uh, or high school, high school age reading level. It's something that a junior high student could pick up and see why they should be Catholic. So if they could do it, anybody could pick up that book and see why they should be Catholic. The case for Catholicism, however, I would say I wrote it at about an undergraduate reading level. So a typical undergraduate in a university would do fine reading the case for Catholicism, but it allowed me to have more footnotes. I've, I always want to have a lot of footnotes. I always want to be bulletproof in the arguments yeah. I put forward to strengthen them as much as I can and to not leave them susceptible to counterattack and responses. Uh, so there with the uh, case for Catholicism, I, I did that with, um, with that. So especially being able to footnote and source the material that I am that I'm drawing from, uh, much of which is actually references to primary sources, whether it's the Church Fathers or Protestant authors that I'm that I'm rebutting. Yeah, good. Um, so right now there are, there are a lot of homeschooling families who are who are looking for good Catholic resources, and, and a lot of families who are new to homeschooling, you know, who are going to, going to start homeschooling um, sure. in the near future. Is this is this something you recommend for use by homeschooling families? I mean, especially especially like you said, when you get up to maybe the high high school, upper high school, or something. Um, yeah, is that the sort of thing that you think would be. Yeah, so here's what I would recommend uh, for case for Catholicism for homeschoolers. Uh, I believe that a motivate, like I said, undergraduate, but of course we know homeschoolers usually are usually a few years ahead of their peers. Uh, a upperclassman, junior, senior in homeschooling who is mature, uh, academically mature, I believe would, would take to the book very well. And so they could do a study on the book itself. Uh, if you have younger high school or even middle school, uh, what you could do is get a copy of my book, Why We Are Catholic from Catholic Answers Press. But I would recommend if you were teaching them that book, you should get a copy of Case for Catholicism from Ignatius Press as essentially a teacher's manual. Uh, so while the students study a, let's say you have younger students, like junior high, freshmen, they could read Why We're Catholic, and then eventually graduate to Case for Catholicism. But yeah. you as a teacher could read Case for Catholicism on your own time uh, to answer questions they may ask and to have uh, like a teacher's preparation, if you will, for uh, leading them in these various activities. Okay. Yeah, that's helpful. Um, so here's the big question. <laughs> Do you think... And I, I have I have in the back of my mind things like the Joint Declaration on Justification. Sure. That do you think that the gap between Catholics and Protestants is something that can be bridged, something that can be ultimately overcome? 
Well, I believe that Jesus did pray that his church may be one as he and the Father are one. So yeah. I have confidence that it will be bridged. Uh, it will not. Now, what we have to remember, of course, is that we're not building a bridge to nowhere. So right. the gap cannot be. It's not the case that you could just build a bridge from each side of the position and then we meet in the middle and we're fine. If we meet in the middle, we're not at the truth. It's only bridged if people leave, if people are in full communion with the church that Christ established. Now, the catechism in paragraph 844, I believe it's 844, says that uh, Protestants and others from those uh, ecclesial communities, uh, if they're validly baptized, they already have an imperfect communion with Christ's church. So our goal would be to strengthen that in that regard. And I do believe that we can. And so books like this can be extremely helpful, I think. Uh, one thing that they can do, and one thing that I have tried to do, is to show that the things that divide us are often the case they are misunderstandings of doctrine or theological opinions rather than the doctrines themselves. Uh, so uh, to give you an, an example, I mean, if some people think, well, the Catholic position on works is that you have to do enough good works to get into heaven, that is not what the Catholic view is at all. The Catholic right. view they show in the book is essentially there's only one work. After you're baptized, there's only one work you have to do to get into heaven, and that's the work of not committing a mortal sin. That's it. So it's more not what you have to do. It's what you should not do. And you cooperate with God's grace in doing that. And any work that you do, I think this is uh, it's in paragraphs, I want to say 2010 of the catechism. Tim Staples is so good at that. He can always get the right paragraph. I'm usually within like five or 10 paragraphs of it. But throughout 2008, 2010, uh, where, where the catechism says that even the saints, when they do the works of God, know that their, their merits are the result of pure grace uh, given to them. So in understanding the role of grace and works and that when it's properly uh, explained to people, then we have, oh, well, then the gap is significantly shortened in that regard. Uh, so uh, another thing, I'm actually responding to an Eastern Orthodox soon. And, uh, and Protestants bring this up, too, that they say, you know, I can't believe that purgatory is, you know, I'm going to go to some prison in the next life where I have to work off my sins and someone's shooting me with a flamethrower and fire to purify me. And there's a famous line from Cardinal Ratzinger in his book, Eschatology, where he said that purgatory is not a supra-worldly concentration camp. So I would say to them, well, look, what does the catechism say about purgatory? And once again, I'm ballparking it here. I want to say 1035, around there, 1033, 1035. The, the catechism just says that purgatory is the final cleansing of the elect before they have eternal life with God. It refers to the saving fire in scripture, but it, but the catechism never tells us what purgatory is like at all. The church does not commit us to a view of what purgatory is like. Right. Uh, so, you know, so there's other issues like that that come up where people think that they are, they're at a gap between the church when really what's holding them back is one set of theological opinions that are not obligatory for someone to hold. Uh, that's why I would actually recommend another book in this regard. My friend Jimmy Aiken wrote a great book called Teaching with authority. Uh, it's a great book for Catholics to read to help them see the different levels of authority in Catholic teaching. What is, what is binding, uh, what is not binding, uh, yeah. things like that. So, yeah. Yeah. It's a good recommendation too. That's a great book. Okay. Well, uh, we're just about out of time here. Uh, is there anything else you wanted to, you wanted to add anything you'd like to say about the book? apart from what we've talked about? No, I, I just feel like the book has blessed many people and I'll just ask for the prayers of your listeners that it continues to bless others, especially I think the book could be very helpful for Protestant pastors who are thinking of becoming Catholic because it's intensive for them. 
gets to the root of the issues. It'd be a great study. So I would just ask your, your viewers prayers that the, the God will use the book to help move people uh, closer to his son and to the church he established. Amen. All right. Well, thanks very much, Trent. And uh, for those, for those watching, um, you can get this book at Ignatius.com, The Case for Catholicism by Trent Horn. Uh, you can get it at Ignatius.com. The link is in the comments, or just go to the search bar on the website. Uh, and if there are no other questions, uh, Trent, thank you very much. Thank you. This podcast has been brought to you by Ignatius Press. We encourage you to check out our books and videos at your local Catholic bookstore or wherever else books and videos are sold. You can also sign up to receive special discounts on books and videos at ignatius.com. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. Please like the podcast on the website or app from which you listen to it. And please tell your friends about it. I'm Mark Brumley, and on behalf of everyone at Ignatius Press, thanks for listening.